Hi everyone, my name is Dean and you're listening to the MLOps podcast. As you probably know, machine learning in general and, and data science are two fields that are evolving all the time and it's really hard to keep up to date. Specifically, the area of bringing machine learning into production or into the real world seems like it's very confusing. There's a lot going on and it's hard to make sense of all that's happening around you. Um, but on the other hand, there are a lot of smart people that are doing great work in bringing their own projects into production. And we've had a chance to speak with a lot of these people, but it definitely seems like the information is not widespread enough and a lot of people don't know of best practices and how other teams work. So that's why we decided to start this podcast where we'll be speaking with people who are working in various types of machine learning teams and hearing about how they are bringing their projects into production. I hope you find this interesting and let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome to the MLOps podcast. My name is Dean, your host, and today I have none other but Yannick Kilcher. Uh, Yannick needs no introduction. He has a YouTube channel uh, with the same name that has helped hundreds of thousands of people uh, make sense of cutting edge machine learning research. He also holds a PhD in artificial intelligence from ETH Zurich, and he is the CTO of DeepJudge, a startup that is doing NLP for legal documents. Um, and as everyone already knows, he is bringing back aviators. So I'll start with that. How, how did the sunglasses uh, come to be? Yeah, it's a, it's a special. Uh, when I started appearing in videos, I actually have some videos where I just appear by myself, but when I, I've given more consideration to appear in videos myself, because I would always just do a voiceover over me explaining a paper. So there was never any face in it and still isn't. So the paper explanations, they don't feature me as a person, as mm -hmm. a face. Uh, but when I, when I started uh, appearing more and, uh, you know, we also started the machine learning street talk at, at that time. I was kind of worried that because deep fakes were coming up and they were becoming pretty good for, for personalities that had a lot of recordings online. So, you know, people like Joe Rogan or so where you have like thousands of hours of just, you know, him talking and people were pretty competent at making very good deep fakes out of him. So I thought, you know, to prevent that just a tiny bit to prevent thousands of hours of me just talking, being online, I'd, uh, I just kind of wear these for, I want to say privacy reasons or so, but, you know, technology has progressed so much that now it's possible from just like the 30 seconds or so to make, <laughs> to make the, the same deep fake. So it's kind of futile, but it's become a branding a branding thing people recognize uh glasses which i don't know if it was a smart decision because when i do live coding or so now i have to live code with sunglasses on which makes it just it's just kind of uh, i have to turn up the brightness and all but yeah i think i have the wait these, these ones right here are the ones i started with these i just had them lying around for some odd reason and i, I kind of upgraded them um to ones that aren't broken in, in, since then i i wasn't aware that it started from like a, a adversarial machine learning uh, idea that's that's really 
Interesting. I guess, yeah, with the progress of technology, you can't count on anything. Soon you won't even need one, one photo. I don't know, they'll reconstruct your face from, from your voice or something. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but until we get there, I mean, you can keep swap, swapping out the sunglasses and then um, it will be your, your means of authentication. Like, it, is the deep fake with the up-to-date sunglasses or not? Uh, right, I'll, I'll print like my public like a public SSH key across the sunglasses for every video, like a new one. That's that's one way to do the verification. Yeah, that's that's very cool. So yeah, so thank you very much for for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, we like I guess people don't know this because I never mentioned this on the call, but but the the method I have for these podcasts is I like to speak with the guests beforehand just to make sure that there's like good chemistry and, and we discuss the general topics that we want to talk about. Um, one of the things that I discovered about you in that call is that you are, you could say you're far from being the most famous kilter um, around the world. So, so yeah. can you maybe share a bit about that? I think a lot of the audience probably don't know this. So, yeah. Yeah, I think um, there, there's a man called uh, Yule, Yule Kilcher. Um, who was in my, I think my grandfather's generation. Uh, so I think in the 30s or 40s or so emigrated to Alaska. And he was, I believe he was the cousin of my grandfather. So the, the son of the brother of my great grandfather. Mm -hmm. And he was like a hippie before there were hippies. And, and or well, in, in, that, in that time, these people were generally called homesteaders. So they would move to Alaska and he, he then he moved to Alaska, took his family with him um, and just kind of lived off the land there. Uh, there is a, an area called Kachemak Bay, uh, which is about a couple of hours from, from, um, from Anchorage, a town called Homer. And what's really cool there is that there's this bay, which kind of gives you a bit of protection from like the big storms. And they had an earthquake or something like this that just laid bare an entire section of coal in the mountainside. So essentially, it, it's, it's a really, apart from it being Alaska and stupidly cold, right? It's, it's like you got lots of fish, uh, you got lots of wood, and you got lots of coal lying around to, to make fire. Uh, so it was, it was for the people who were into this, I believe quite an attractive place and there was lots of land. So they just lived off the land and, uh, yeah, he became a state Senator and then his, his kids, um, were, they had plenty of kids, I believe eight kids. And some of them became like musicians and all toured uh, They're They're in the U S quite famous jewel is the daughter of the son of him. Um, she's quite known. And then now they have like a reality TV show about living in Alaska. And yeah, so it's, it's pretty funny. Usually the, the name is not super common, right? But when you search it, I guess you first find lots of the Kilcher family in Alaska. And, and then I'm somewhere in the bottom. So yeah, that's that surprised me. I actually Googled it after the call and I realized that also the um, there's someone with your last name that played Pocahontas in like a Hollywood video or something like that. Oh yeah, Koryanka, um, yeah. She's yeah. from she's from the the kind of same lineage there. Um yeah. Yeah, it's pretty they they are they are uh they're like entertainers and like survivors. They're they're very 
tough people who are very skilled at at many things yeah, big respects <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's a good family to be a part of i guess uh i was i was joking about this meaning that you were always drawn to the screen but i'm i'm curious if you can share like how, how did you decide to start the the youtube channel like what led you to it um yeah i don't i don't know exactly what led me to have the idea but i had to read some obscure reinforcement learning uh papers which were about how to plan how to to bring planning into reinforcement learning and in a bit of a different way than like alpha go would do it with the monte carlo tree search but more like how to how to uh make the agent learn to plan so i had to read a bunch of these papers and i just for some reason thought you know if someone else had to read them at some point maybe they would be helped by me making a video of it and i kind of saw that on youtube there was a lot of content for beginners uh for machine learning like you know how to get into it or kind of the the basics of even deep learning but also kind of classic machine learning a lot of content but then not a lot of advanced content so not a lot of content that would get you get you essentially from master's level bachelor's master's level at university to the current frontier of research so there was there was kind of no content and you know i i thought i could just start providing that content maybe it would help someone additionally it just forced forces me still to uh just pay attention to what i read uh really understand it and that helps tremendously i believe yeah, fair enough. I, I think that it's uh, these things so somehow always start from from a personal need. Um, and then, as you say, I think a lot of people have this um, issue of how to understand these complex topics. Um, was there like a moment of change? Like, was there a single paper where you saw it taking off? Did it take off from the beginning? No, it was, I believe I uploaded the first ones in 2017. It would not really take off until like 2020 or maybe 2019 or so. So I I made these videos not regularly but on and off for a long time, um, and I got you know maybe a hundred views or so. Um, or you just I didn't even look like I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't in any way looking after I uh, want views or something like this. And then I believe the video on attention is all you need um was quite popular and just it still is it's kind of like an, an evergreen people are going back to that paper to understand how attention mechanisms and transformers work and so on and it was like a like it was a like video wise it was a crappy video it's <laughs> so i used like adobe acrobat reader and the, the drawing, the pencil functionality in that. So it, it's really crude. Um, I used the default thumbnail that YouTube gave me, which you should like never do. Like, any, any guy says, just never take the default thumbnail that YouTube gives you. Um, I, just, I just put the tension is all you need in the type. And still to this day, people find it really helpful. So that sort of gave me a bit of, views as such which i didn't realize like i didn't realize that that i suddenly i just made some videos and then yeah i believe covid 
um, all of a sudden I found myself with a lot of time because life sort of slowed down around me, uh, I think around everyone. And at the same time, I was quite deeply impressed by other YouTubers. Like, uh, I don't know, I've been watching PewDiePie for, you know, a while and, um, uh, YouTubers like Casey Neistat or so who just kind of were doing the daily upload thing. And I just asked myself, you know, can I do daily uploads? What would it take to do that next to, next to doing the PhD and all, uh, is it possible for me to do daily uploads? And it turned out if you make that your mission, let's say it somehow works, right? It's like, it's crazy that once you say I'm going to do daily uploads, it just somehow it, it works. And then once I did the daily uploads, I think just also the, the volume combined with everyone sitting at home, spending more time online, um, gave me a bit of a boost. Yeah. I think one, one of the interesting things is like people don't understand this is not really related to machine learning. It doesn't matter what content you create, but content has sort of the compounding effect. So you, you don't see the dividends early on, but later in life, the fact that you have that older content is going to uh, be really helpful because people come for one content piece and they find that you have another 10 that are interesting. And so you have to push through it. Um, I think for like uh, podcasts, we haven't, we haven't crossed that border. Usually people say like 10 episodes. So this is going to be probably episode seven, but we're getting, getting to that point. Uh, where it becomes a habit and, and we're already seeing the, the like the listeners uh, or viewers coming in. Um, but also the other interesting point that you mentioned is like that that bird, that attention was the um, the moment of truth or, or the moment of change. I, I feel like, um, you know, I, I've had uh, Julian from from uh, Hugging Face on this podcast and he spoke about the meaning of BERT for for sort of their open source project. It seems like BERT changed a lot of lives, except for the people <laughs> that created it. So so that's also like interesting. And also, I guess, to share a personal story, that's in a sense how I how I discovered uh, your channel as well. Like um, I was working on the reproducibility challenge. Um, with a bunch of, of great people from the fast AI community. And the paper that was chosen was the reformer paper. Um, and obviously reformer is sort of an evolution or, or something that's built on top of the transformer. So I was like, okay, I want to take a step back and you know dive deeper into the theory behind first the transformer and then the reformer. And you have two great videos about both of those. So that really, really clicked. I think that one of the challenges is like you get to these papers and you try to read them yourself, which is something that I always do. And I feel like I've, I have the background to do that. Um, and still a lot of times you feel like there's a lot of uh, information around the core idea, which sometimes I, I like, I, I want to believe that the authors do that to make it more accessible, but many times it actually obscures the core idea. So, so watching your video where you only talk about the core idea and explain sort of the, how that works and then going back and reading the paper again, then you sort of, everything falls into place much better. Um, and, and so I think that that's, uh, it makes sense, right? Because the attention mechanism is not as straightforward and, and sort of getting a deeper understanding of how it works is very useful if, if that's something that you're interested or working on. Um, 
I have a question from a friend who's now working on his uh, uh, master's studies. So he said that he does, he's not sure if he could have finished his studies without your YouTube channel. Um, <laughs> but but he, wa he was curious to hear, so this is shout out to, to Michael, um, uh, like how long do you spend on an average paper that you review? Like how long does it take to create such a video? It depends fully on the paper itself. So there are some papers which are first of all, in the domain that I'm familiar with, and they are, let's say, uh, a modification to some architecture that is, you know, a straightforward idea, implementation of the idea, uh, experimental evaluations, a bit of ablation or introspection. I believe, you know, I read th that paper twice, maybe, and I'm, I'm good to go on, you know, feeling confident that I can bring across the core idea and what the paper wants to communicate. The other papers take way longer. I, I reread them. I go look for additional information. So I really can't tell um, by, you know, in, in, in general. Uh, although I, I have to say, usually I try to, to read the paper until I understand it, you know, whatever that means. Um, and that might take me a few hours or so uh, I don't, you know, appendix, I sometimes leave away, which I guess I shouldn't if I review it fully, but sometimes appendices are super duper long. So, and then, uh, yeah. And then I usually try to get it like read and then sleep, like not deliberately sleep, but, you know, I try to do it on separate days such that I have like a night sleep because I feel for whatever reason, when I've slept between reading and recording the review, it just flows better. I, I have a clarity more and an, an idea of how I can tell it, or maybe I understand it better. Maybe it's just a myth and I'm, I'm, it's become a placebo effect for me. Uh, but I do notice a difference in quality when I do a review on the same day I read the paper and when I do it on the next day. And then recording itself is like a single take, mostly. It's just, I, I rarely restart. Sometimes I screw up the names of the authors, then I restart. Uh, but then I just single take, explain the paper. After that, there's a bit of post-processing in uploading, making chapter annotations, making the thumbnail and so on. But, you know, there's not too much overhead. I mean, that, that sounds uh, pretty impressive. I feel like most of the like i would imagine most of the work is going to go on to like understanding the paper and annotating it uh properly and, and you know making sure that it it sort of makes sense to present it in video form yeah. um but but if i understand correctly what you're saying is that's basically it takes you usually a day or two right like that's sort of the order of magnitude that we're talking about um, yes yeah, it's not not weeks, right? For a paper, I yeah, it's usually in the order of days. That's that's really. Um, I feel like that is unique, and I, I know we've spoken a few times. I know you're very humble, but I, I at least from my perspective, from speaking to to my friend, um, you're probably uh, world class. But if not, let's say very very good at taking notes on on machine learning research papers. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but. But I think like simplifying complex ideas is something that a lot of people that are working, whether it's in industry and of course in, in sort of academic research, is something that you have to do, right? Like it's it's super important, otherwise you're going to get stuck. 
And so like if, if there are listeners that are now getting into research or that need to do this on a regular basis in, in industry jobs, like except for sleeping on it, which I think is a good idea for anything complex that you need to do, whether it's like important decisions or, you know, understanding uh, complex ideas. But how, how do you do this? Like, what's the process? I think it's a matter of, uh, of practice just because, you know, I've, I was in, in this field, did a master's where I mostly took machine learning classes, then did the PhD where I read quite a bit. So I, I was always broadly interested. So I used to read all of archive. Actually, I had a bot that downloaded every day, the new archive papers at the time where this was still possible. Um, and, and I, I just read, I didn't read all the papers, but I read through all of the titles and abstracts and then some papers I would actually read in full. So it is a matter of, I believe, mostly practice, um, experience, talking to people, kind of knowing what's going on in all the different subfields. And I think with time, if you're in it, right, with time, it gets easier as everything complex gets easier because you'll see the same patterns over and over again. Uh, you know, someone develops some new architecture. Sure, it's a new architecture, but the reasonings, the the um, the things they're going to do in terms of experiments and so on, they're going to be largely the same. So you kind of know what to expect. You kind of see when something's unusual because you've seen 10 other things before that are like it. So I don't, I don't believe like it's necessary, necessarily as a matter of skill, mm -hmm. uh, or it's not necessarily a matter of inherent talent or, or, or a secret methodology or anything like this. It's, it's just kind of, if you do it for a while, you get better at it. And, uh, I totally see that people in industry somehow who every now and then have to read a paper, you know, to get up to speed on some new technology that that can take, you know, days or weeks because, you know, they're, they're just walking on this paper. They, they're not super aware of what's going on in the field around that paper. The paper doesn't explain everything in full detail, uh, but when you're inside it, you're quickly able to, to get up to speed on anything. Interesting. Do, do you think that there's um, that like implementation is important for understanding? Like, do you find yourself implementing papers or looking through the code? Or do you think that usually the paper is or should be self-contained? I don't implement the papers that I review because just that would be a massive amount of work. I do believe, though, to like truly, fully understand that it it is very helpful to go ahead and implement that paper because while implementing it, you also see, ah, okay, you know, here is a tricky bit. Uh, and then if there's reference code by the authors, you'll go look and say, ah, that's, you know, they, they kind of cheated here and they brought in some extra thing there and, and so on. So yeah, to, to really, if you need to actually, let's say, work with a technology that's described in a paper, absolutely go look at the code, implement it yourself, right? See whether you can reproduce even minimally the paper itself. Um, very often you'll find you can't. So yeah, I, I guess my, my follow-up to that is, um, do you think that implementing the papers that you read is important to understanding them or should the ideas uh, be sort of fully contained within the paper? Yeah, I there's yes and no. I, I personally don't implement the papers that I review. 
because it just takes too much time implementing something like this and really getting it to work. Like, like the idea and actually making it work, that those are two entirely different things. Um, many people have great ideas. If you, if you listen around at conferences and so on, ideas are plentiful, right? And sometimes people, they see a paper and they're like, oh, I had this idea, you know, two years ago. Like, yeah, the idea is usually not the, the difficult part sometimes, but usually not. It's the actually making it work. That being said, I don't implement the papers. I sort of kind of trust the paper's results. However, if you do, if you are relying on a technology, if you do have to work with a technology that is, that's described in a paper, definitely I would recommend go ahead, implement it because you'll, you'll learn the tricky bits, right? You learn where, you know, where it works, where the authors had to cheat a bit and so on. If there's reference code, even better, right? Look at it and, and see what's going on. So, uh, yeah, generally, I don't trust papers results un unless they have been sort of verified by multiple other sources. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't, I don't usually necessarily trust experimental results. There's differences, um, you know, kind of by looking at the paper, you can get a feeling of how, how hyper-optimized is this to make it appealing to publish. Um, but you, you, you only truly figure it out once you actually implement it and try to get it to work. Sometimes, often you'll find for a regular paper in machine learning, you won't be able to get it to work as well as the paper describes. Interesting. That's, I mean, that's kind of a sad note, right? Um, <laughs> like, obviously, a lot has been said about uh, reproducibility in machine learning, and it's a subject that's very close to me and, and to us that are working on DAGs Hub. Um, but do you think that that's sort of unique to the way machine learning is done or to the incentives that we have um, within the field that, that the, the, let's say the current state of reproducibility in, in machine learning, like, is this a real problem? And do you have any thoughts on how maybe we can solve it? Um, I don't believe it's necessarily unique. There is a, some uniqueness to machine learning in that we've had this kind of explosion in the last few years of just, the, uh, the increase of the size of the field, which leads to a situation where most reviewers of papers are quite new to the field, don't have super much experience. And also most, even if they do have experience, there's just such a breadth of the field that your reviewers most likely aren't super duper duper experts in, in, in the paper that they're assigned. So they just sort of guests and they don't reproduce either. I don't believe anyone actually some reviewers I've seen. Um, and I have also very few times actually re-implemented something just because I knew I could do it in, you know, under 30 minutes. And I absolutely knew that what it would show is that the paper was wrong. Right. So like it, at, in that point I will do it. But other than that, I, I, didn't and I don't think anyone else does. Yeah, reproducibility is a is a big. It's almost like a crisis, but it exists in many fields. If you if you look at psychology or something like this, they're you know they're just p hacking their way to to publish some papers that show some weird effect of well, if you only 
read with your left eye while jumping around your your empathy goes up or something um and yeah so i yeah it exists in many fields because the stakes of mistakes are relatively low you know mm -hmm. if your method doesn't work as advertised then you know boohoo you don't get punished for it no one no one is getting hurt because anyone who's implementing it is testing it first anyway it's not like medicine where you propose some new drug and and you say wow that's this work this really works and then millions of research dollars go into that and 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 people are getting hurt maybe it's not there's not particularly many stakes um and it is kind of it's still we've moving away a bit from that but it's still the case that if you have good numbers your paper is much more likely to get accepted than if you have if you have a new method and you say well my method is interesting it almost reaches the methods that already exist it just does it in a different way like good luck getting that paper published <laughs> it happens but it doesn't happen often however if you say look here is a thing whatever i do i beat everything else on the planet uh, your paper has a very high likelihood of getting published unless the reviewers really don't believe your experimental results. And so far, the attempts of the community to make things more reproducible, I would say have been quite fruitless because what you're required to do is you're required sometimes to submit your code of your experiments to, uh, to the, and that's not helping because I can, I believe, I believe that most people don't outright fake their numbers. They're, they don't sit there and put like, well, my method has, you know, like ah, 95.7. So most people will still, they will cheat and hack and, and, and try random seeds and uh, optimize for more and longer and so on until their method reaches that higher number. But that means if I, if, you, if I give you my code and you run that code again, you'll get the same number. It doesn't mean that the method in a, let's say a fair mode of comparison across the spectrum of data sets that exists and so on, or even in the wild would hold up to the challenge. So that is, is a challenge. I don't exactly know how to solve it. Maybe we should attack it from a more like a step back and question whether this conference review system that we have is maybe a bit the problem mm -hmm. because um, I've seen a lot of success in just sort of people putting things on archive, advertising it a bit, and then just other people trying it. And just, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of through the social uh, bound, like social network. And I mean that in a classic sense, like just the, the peer bonds between people it sort of propagates, well, okay, I tried this and it didn't work. And, and, you know, all my friends tried it and they said it didn't work either and so on. And I think that I have much more trust in than, you know, the, the review system. Yeah, that, I mean, I, um, I think that cultural norms are sort of an important, an important part of, of, of finding some solution, which actually works. I think that one of the challenges that that we've experienced with this is that a lot of that knowledge is is sort of lost to the people that already have it like there's no um like i am I'm, I'm uh i'm an avid redditor so sometimes someone on reddit is so angry that they couldn't reproduce a paper 
that they like call out the people who created the paper on how hard it was to reproduce. Most times that doesn't happen. And so like you can, you go to meetups and you speak to people and they're like, oh yeah, everyone who's tried to run this paper like fails. It, it's, it's, it doesn't work. It only works in, in, uh, in theory and in, in practice, no one has ever actually made it work. Um, but there's no sort of structured way to do that except for like the reproducibility challenge. I understand what you're saying. You're like basically creating sort of more content to be reviewed um, and, and the standards for the review like we've now supported the reproducibility challenge as well. And we've gotten some submissions, which are awesome. Like people invest a lot of time uh, in, in, you know, taking these papers, which are in many cases, as you say, like state of the art, they do world-class performance on some uh, structure, on some uh, uh, challenge. Um, and then in most cases, the sort of kernel, there is a kernel of truth. Like, as, as you say, it's not an outright lie. We have seen a few people that were especially diligent and sort of tried, you know, different configurations and, and basically found out that the paper is reproducible, but only in a very, very narrow set of like parameters, data sets, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of, I guess, disheartening as well. Uh, I mean, I feel like, I guess, if you're an industry professional, then you know a lot of things that wouldn't be um, sort of considered research uh, worthy knowledge, but it's super help, like super important for industry because you need to know that this paper, even though it sounds amazing, will not work in in production. Um, but but yeah, there's no organized way to collect that information, and and that that is maybe a problem. I don't know. Have you, do you feel like there are any tools that could help aside from the culture norms and and uh, uh, the structure of like um, conferences and review? It is hard. Like it is, it is, you know, legitimately quite hard to do. I don't think, I don't think there's going to be like the one way to do it in my point of view, because there's always as a paper author, someone reproduces your paper, doesn't get your performance and so on. You can always say you did it wrong and you, you might actually be convinced that they did it wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. And the tricky bit is that sometimes a non-trivial amount of times they actually did it wrong. Right. <laughs> And all these, all these ideas that don't work, they sometimes only need a tiny modification, a, a tiny idea to actually get them to work. That, that's the, the tricky bit. We've seen the last years have been full of methods that were invented in the 90s and tried again in the 2000s and then tried again at the beginning of the deep learning revolution mm -hmm. and never really worked and then someone comes along and says hey if i you know make this modification actually works just fine or if i just throw more computers at it it works actually fine and i think this i think it's it will we'll just have to continue to essentially in this decentralized way message passing from person to person to build kind of like a, a latent knowledge. I'm not sure if we could build good tools to support that. I believe the open source and um, open research uh, attitude that the community has with publishing on archive a lot and, and just sort of advertising around talking in the open is quite helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and do you, do you sort of, um, I know that you're sort of working on uh, um, on a startup as well. So do you have different standards for what papers you think about in the context of the startup compared at, to how you were as a PhD student? Yeah, definitely. 
I mean, the, so uh, in in the startup, it's it's also the the issue that um, you're not looking for that two percent gain in the mm -hmm. startup. At least at least we are not right. We are if if something is not you know twice as good or you know ten times as fast or something like this is usually not really worth it. It might be worth it once you know we're at that edge and really want to push the performance to its limit. But right now, um, you know, in 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 legal, we're in legal tech, right? And the law is a quite a conservative industry. So they just got done with digitalization as such, right? So you can imagine, do what there is a lot more low hanging fruit, you know, to be done with good models, right? Modern models and, and so on, like modern techniques, but it doesn't have to be the super duper complex mega state of the art method in order to already bring that value. Uh, so we're thinking much more in terms of, you know, bang for the buck. And when you're a PhD student, you're essentially thinking of, okay, I need to somehow make a contribution to the knowledge of the world, right? I need to figure out something that no one has figured out before. And that can be a small thing um, as long as it's a new and important, somewhat important thing. <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely different. So I guess this is a good segue. Like uh, I feel most people know about the YouTube channel. They know about the work that you do with, um, you know, making sense of of uh, complicated ideas and papers. Um, can you share what you're working on in, in your startup? Yeah, we essentially build uh, NLP tech for legal, any sort of legal document people. So lawyers first and foremost, but also legal departments, uh, government agencies, anything like this. So that, that goes into various directions since as you might know, the models they'd all tend to sort of converge, um, especially in NLP, uh, we're, we're able to tackle the different challenges there. So we're quite young, um, but it's, it's been fun so far. And do you feel like the background that you have in research sort of led you to start the company or how did it happen? Um, it was more, we did, we did a project, we, you know, during the PhD, you need to collect some, some formally, some credits. And so people tend to take some random lectures. And, uh, we took this one called building a robot judge, which was broadly about legal tech. And that seemed like an interesting area. And there seemed to be a lot of unsolved challenges that were quite, that we found to be quite tackleable with the modern NLP tools that exist. So we decided we'd do that, but it was more or less, more or less random, I guess. Fair enough. I mean, I guess it, it, it couldn't be random if you decided to completely random, if you decided to start a company off of it, but sure. it seems like you sort of, it was uh, like a gradual, uh, gradual process getting into entrepreneurship. Um, do you, do you already have sort of models running in production or, or not yet? Yeah. yeah. I mean, models running and yes, we, we do. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, as I said, they're not, they're modern, but not ultra, ultra, like we're complicated. Um, it's, I find, and I believe most practitioners would agree that data 
and sort of the pre-processing, post-processing, making sure that, that the quality is good and so on will, will 10x your performance any day. Whereas improvements in the model, they might bring you, as I said, that 5-10% improvement or so, which is good, right? But if you have to decide where to focus your attention, you, you'd rather um, sometimes or oftentimes invest it into uh, doing the correct things rather than improve, like Im improving the, the models themselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So what are, what would you say are the main challenges around either getting the models into production or as you say, collecting the data to improve the models? Well, it depends on the task you do a lot of, lot of data is public, but then the most interesting data is obviously not public. Uh, we are working we're, we tend to work with larger customers which fortunately will always have kind of a repository of, of data that we can work with. Um, challenges, I believe the bigger challenges are not necessarily machine learning. So that the sad truth is that even if you run a machine learning and AI startup, you, you won't do AI all day long. It's, it, it's a lot of integration. It's a lot of organizations on bureaucracy, right? Uh, concerns. On you know, if you, you have to work with someone else's system, because most often they just don't want to send send you their data. They're like, oh yeah, here is all the documents of us and all our clients and super confidentials. Like, have it. It doesn't happen. So <laughs> you need to usually go to them. And it, it, so there's there's a lot of challenges around uh, deployment, how to you know how to keep things um, secure, how to keep things running when it's not on your particular system and so on. So the challenges have been more in terms of these, these kinds of things. And yeah, as I said, admin and bureaucracy is also a big, big part of this. Yeah. Not everything is uh, glamorous uh, transformers and uh... yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's fair. I guess, I mean, admin and bureaucracy aside, obviously that's important. Um, but I feel like what you're saying is it, there is sort of a, a recurring theme where the even the technical challenges are usually around sort of connecting the work that you do that you would have done in a lab into where the customers or users really are. So in your case, does that mean that your deployments are like on premises or are, like I, I, we've heard two ways to tackle this. One of them is sort of creating some secure uh, gateway for the data to get to the models. The other is actually deploying the model on the customer's uh, device. So if, if, again, if you can share this, how does yeah. it work for you? And, and if you can share like some of the specific challenges that you faced, that would be- We do both. Um, okay. With the rise, of, with the rise of, of private clouds, I believe that has become a lot easier. Like I haven't been around before that, um, but I, I believe with, you know, most, most larger companies will have something like a cluster will mm -hmm. maybe already have like a private cloud, or they can give you a bunch of machines where you can pull one up. And then it's, we kind of pay special attention that we are uh, not very dependent on the offerings of the individual cloud vendors. Mm -hmm. uh, so we do use their, their offerings, but we always pay attention that we have an alternative that works on premise. So you know, if we use specific databases, we can, we can swap them out and so on. So that makes life a whole lot easier in that, you know, we can tell the company, please give us a namespace or something in, 
in the in your private cloud that we can deploy to, to and then we'll take care of the rest so yeah we're we're mainly cloud based like this and then it's not that much of a difference where the whole where that is so it depends mostly on what the people want if they say no way our data leaves our premises then we'll we'll do it with the sort of the private cloud way yeah that makes sense um so i guess um a few maybe taking a step back a few uh, higher level questions first is uh what do you think are the most uh, interesting exciting trends in in machine learning machine learning operations uh, that you see right now that is, I mean, it's a super tough question. <laughs> uh, there's probably 10 answers in every subfield. Uh, just, I mean, uh, to, pick, to pick some out of them, uh, I believe there, there's a lot of, obviously, and we've already seen that, the combination of modalities. So deep learning models, they used to be largely single modality, maybe sometimes translating between two, like speech to text or Mm -hmm. or, or text-to-speech or something like this, but now we really see sort of the co-training and, and combining of different modalities, images and text together uh, is, is probably the biggest thing. All the AI art that exists right now, it, it's really crazy. It's a really cool field. So that's definitely, I believe that that's going to um, just, just enable a lot of people to do these things, like to do artsy things um and it's a really new way of interacting now you, you used to have you used to if you were a graphical artist like a painter or something there's two aspects right you need to be able to have the creativity to come up with like a motif of something and then you also used to have have to have the skill of actually putting it down and sure that there's like a there's like a deep connection between the two right and, and that will never be taken away from painters but these ai art models they allow you to if you are creative with your words uh, and and you understand the system a little bit you no longer necessarily need that that raw that mechanical skill which for example i really don't i really don't have the mechanical skill of drawing my drawings look like a five-year-old's drawing. Like anyone who watches my videos can attest to that is really bad. Um, so it gives people like me an opportunity to also dive into this, this art world. And I believe we're going to see these kinds of things which mo with much more modalities. And the, the other thing is uh, we've seen a bunch of models now that um, are able to, at inference time, kind of go look for information. Uh, mostly we've seen conversational models like chatbots and so on that not only learn to give you an answer, but at inference time, we'll go use a search engine to, to look up stuff, right? And then uh, based on the stuff they find there, uh, yeah, or, or language models that during inference time query the Wikipedia or something like this for, 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 for you know, giving the answer to you. And I believe that's way exciting because it kind of breaks that trend of, more and more compute in mm -hmm. these language models because we essentially we can focus on the language itself and the mechanics of acquiring knowledge and all the knowledge itself can reside somewhere else and we can provide it just at inference time that's that's really cool uh, so these i guess are two of the things um possibly a third thing would be something like graph neural networks um rising in popularity 
I believe with, yeah, with something like alpha fold or so, uh, and, and other developments, it's, I would say they're on the upswing and we see a lot of hardware startups focusing on graph neural network, mm -hmm. uh, acceleration. And I think if these things come together, that could bring quite a boost to that, to, to a bunch of new problems that we really haven't been able to solve so far. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I feel like I'm always curious, especially with uh, AI art models, um, whether or not we've already seen the um, killer app for that, if that yeah, makes sense. Probably like, not. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. Like it, it feels, it, it feels amazing. And especially now, like I, I'm not a big uh, crypto person uh, for good or for bad, especially now with like NFTs, people are, you know, using these uh, AI models to generate art, which they then mint it as nfts and things like that but i still feel like they're probably like i i'm i'm uh i'm a like graphic designer by hobby like i'm self-taught graphic designer mm -hmm. since a young age i feel like the uh sort of ai assisted art is going to be amazing once once we've really nailed it i feel like that's still in early days like the things that nvidia i think it's nvidia right with gogan it's uh um yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's it's like, it's amazing what they've already achieved. The moment it becomes, it gets to the point where you can use it, um, I don't know, in Figma or something like that as part of your day-to-day -day work, that would be incredible. Also, I think the Gogan specifically is like compute heavy. So I'm not sure how reasonable it is to use it in a day-to-day -day way uh, for a reasonable price. So mm. we'll see about that as well. But yeah, but I, I think all, all of those topics are, um, really exciting and, and there's still work to be done. So if you are looking for a research field or, or, or trying to build sort of a startup on them, on them I, I think that there's still work to be done. It's not, uh, we, we haven't figured out how to apply them to the real world well enough uh, in, my, in my mind. Definitely, um, yeah. So the, the second question I have is, is something that we sort of touched upon earlier, but um, as you said, in earlier days, you could actually download all of the new archive uh papers and just quickly skim over them and decide what's interesting to read um now that is probably no longer the case so how do you keep up to date with with everything that's going on how do you decide what to focus on like what's going to be more interesting or important to read um yeah it's become a challenge and well i think everyone has their own method which in part i like like i like that there isn't a single like source of source of truth that says here are the good papers. Uh, so, and I, I also, I believe I cast my net broadly mm -hmm. in that I do sometimes even look at archive itself, but there are various, various ways in which I, uh, get informed about new papers, uh, various from, you know, various Twitter feeds uh twitter people who post interesting new papers and also following just researchers on twitter um will surface because they advertise their new papers and and those are already two disconnected things right because um like the people who run the twitter feeds they focus on what they think are interesting and then obviously the authors of papers they focus on their own papers so you already get like two different kind of um, optimization objectives in in these types of, of publishing right and then and then on reddit um it's usually some papers surface uh which i don't know reddit i believe is very is very prone to 
um, just kind of hypey and, 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 and flashy sounding things because on Reddit, there can only be like a thing per day that is really high up. So, 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 uh, that is yet another way of consuming these things. And then, uh, I have a great discord community around my channel and people post papers, there, new papers, uh, that they find and discuss them a little bit. And, and there you can also get, you know, different, I think what you want to look for is just a stream of, of different opinions and, and different, um, objectives, uh, of, of collecting your information so that you'll, you'll, you won't, you won't probably won't miss like the big things, mm -hmm. right? If, if, if deep mind brings out, like gets out a new alpha fold paper that just breaks every, you know, metric, um, you won't miss it. Right. But you want to kind of keep your, I want to say your, your feelers out mm -hmm. for, uh, just unexpected discoveries. And yeah, as, I believe I, I do, I, I cast my net kind of as wide as I can, um, while still being manageable enough. So yeah, I also, I also use various, um, of these recommendation engine type things. Mm. So that's, yeah, there's, there's no one thing and no one thing I can recommend to people. It also depends a little bit on how much stamina and, uh, will you have to, to skim through new things and decide whether they're good or not. How, how many of those, like, obviously you're a busy person. How, how many of those papers do you do like every week or, or month or something like that? Do you have some order of magnitude? Well, I, well, just the skimming through the, the feeds and obviously that's, that's interleaved. If, you know, if it's social media, that's interleaved mm -hmm. with other stuff and news and Cat so memes. on. Yeah. And then, and, 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 and in other ways. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I, I really have not, not a good metric, but then. I save maybe, you know, a few dozen, like a low number of dozen papers a week mm -hmm. to, to closer Sweet. inspect, okay. right? <laughs> Let's just inspect more closely. And then mm -hmm. I, through them, I decide pretty quickly, you know, which ones I like and which ones I don't like. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, to me, that sounds like a lot. Um, I don't know. I don't have a reference for what an average PhD uh, student does, but, it, but a few dozens to look a bit deeper into um, a you know, look a bit deeper is just like read title, read abstract, look at figure one, right? Read a bit around it and then decide, ah, okay, looks good or not. It's not, I go, I go super deeply and the average PhD student, it's interesting because maybe a first year PhD student would, uh, you know, also read pretty broadly, but most PhD students, once they're settled in to their problem, to their field, they will look at the new papers in their fields, but they will be, you know, you're so specialized that most often there will be at most like one new paper a week or so mm -hmm. at most. Um, and you, you know, exactly the labs where it can come from. Uh, so, and it's kind of sad because most of the time a PhD students who are more advanced, they kind of lose touch with the current research happenings and, uh, yeah. But it's just the way it is. That's interesting. Um, like, I wonder if it's a matter of, of personality, and then some people do go the extra mile and read in other in other areas. Like, I, I feel like there's a huge upside to that, which is like cross pollination of ideas. Like, if you're working, the the, the community is so broad. Obviously, in some cases, 
you can apply something from NLP to vision. But even within NLP, if you are sort of, sort of uh, super uh, specialized in a sub-sub-field and you don't even read from other sub-sub-fields, then, then that is, that is a, um, yeah, I agree with you. That, that is sad. Like, uh, it's a shame, maybe not sad. I don't know. Uh, well, there is a, a yeah, it's, I guess it's personality and it's also a trade-off between, you know, focus and, uh, and diversity. And it's probably also good that we have different people, right? Some that just hyper-focus and some that just diversify, but, but then never really get super ultra deep into any one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder, like, I haven't had the chance to speak with, I don't know, like the uh, authors of the uh, Transformer paper. It would be interesting to gauge, like, take the, take these, uh, you know, world changing papers, uh, or at least ML world changing papers, and see how, if the personas behind them are, are like diverse in, in their like approaches and backgrounds or not. I don't know. You you actually have more experience than this now. Now that you're also bringing authors uh, onto your channel, right, to review yeah. it with them, do you feel like it's it's very diverse or 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 not? I I find that I find that there is a diversity in uh, how diverse people are. So as <laughs> as I said, there are some people who just you you realize you know they are quite focused on their particular niche and 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 what's going on there, and then there are some people who uh, cross-pollinate mm -hmm. as you say um so yeah there's there's variance and that's probably as i said it's probably yeah. good yeah fair enough so i guess uh one last thing you mentioned you have a discord channel is that like openly available or sure sure it's okay so we'll i should probably get like a real link to that but it, it's it's somewhere in the in the description of my videos okay so we'll, we'll add a link also in, in the description okay. of this uh, video i think uh it's probably going to be interesting for a lot of people. And we'll end with one uh, last question that I ask everyone, which is recommendations for the audience. And these don't have to be uh, data science related. So books, Netflix shows, whatever you've seen recently or, or want to share. Oh, uh, good question. Um, well, recommendations, what I say sleep well. Um, it's, it's like, I keep rediscovering how, how, how much of a super, super power, uh, sort of it is to, to be slept well. And I am the worst person at sleeping well. So, uh, but if, you know, if I could give one, uh, performance suggestion, but then suggestions for content, I, I, it is, it's, it's tough. I tend to be interested in, in stages in in various um things uh, so that is is it, it's hard um not sure yeah, no, I have a, like, i'm not what sure what about I have now it doesn't have to answer. be it doesn't have to be um, something uh, i'm currently I quite was... interested in um how how youtube channels that used to be popular are no longer popular because I'm quite paranoid that that's going to happen to me. <laughs> and so I'm watching like a lot of documentaries and analyses on how YouTube channels or in general, more like popular things fail or, or fall out of, out of fashion mm -hmm. or something like this, uh, just, just to um, sort of learn from that and, and try to innovate and try to stay kind of helpful to people so that that you know people continue to be 
interested. Uh, I don't I don't think that's going to be super helpful to a lot of the audience here, except if you want to get into content creation. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely interesting. Well, I mean, building a personal brand is important no matter what you do. And I think in the ML world, for good or for bad, it is it is also very important. Like you see, it, it's it's you can see it in the fact that a lot of the discourse that is happening is happening on Twitter. Um, and and so people that have a personal brand um, have more clout in those discussions, maybe. Um, so maybe it's relevant. I, I, there's a there's a YouTube channel I'm I'm also subscribed to, just called Veritasium. Uh, he's a sure yeah yeah. So he he's like a physicist by training, and he talks about a bunch of different things, and he also explains complex topics uh, in in sort of math and physics, and and sometimes computer science, and in simplified ways which make them more accessible. But he had an entire video about the YouTube algorithm and, and sort of how, how he thinks about it as sort of a content creator, YouTuber, influencer, whatever you want to call him. Uh, so maybe that's, I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, video. Sure. But I, don't, I don't even think he's a, is he actually a trained physicist or is he just like super interested in science? I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but. I think um, he did a master's. And then oh, okay. he, he okay. I think so. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. I vaguely remember that he is trained and, and that he said, like, he okay. was considering pursuing, like, more research and decided yeah. that, like, sharing knowledge is, is more interesting. But I might. Yeah, he's really wrong. cool. Yeah, um, I, I really enjoy the videos. Yeah, well. I, I don't even like I don't even want to optimize for the algorithm per se, because the mm -hmm. algorithm also changes. So I don't want to yeah. become like an, an algorithm changer. But it's I, I want to kind of just stay relevant to the mm -hmm. the ml community and just uh, serve them as as well as i can because it's fun to me and uh yeah if if it's useful then all the better yeah i think most of those um videos that give advice on what to do end up with the um timeless advice of create good content so <laughs> you, yeah. you you should always uh, adhere to that um, okay. A any other recommendations? Um, not really. Um, that's, okay. that's it. That's, that's pretty much my life now. It's work and YouTube and a bit of sports. That's, uh, I mean, sounds, sounds good. It, it sounds pretty, pretty varied except for the no sleep part, but I, that might be an entrepreneurship related problem. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, for, for my side, I'll, I'll just, uh, like uh, I'm now finishing reading a book called The Fifth Season um, that my brother got me. He has good recommendations in general. So uh, it's like uh, mostly fantasy, a bit sci-fi. I'm not at the end yet, but it's, uh, it's, it's very, very good. Uh, so if you're into that uh, sort of thing, I really recommend it. Um, and then, um, yeah, things that, that I've been uh, thinking a lot about recently are like um, solving solving for complex machine learning use cases uh, um, and, and how that's done in, in the real world as opposed to in, in theory. Um, a lot of the discussions I've had recently are about like active learning and how do you mm. how do you make sure that your model continues to learn once you've deployed it aside from as you say like improving architecture, which is nice but usually doesn't lead to the gains that you expected. Um, and so there are a lot of interesting challenges there. I don't have a canonical book to recommend 
uh, about it. I should probably come up with one, uh, but that's something that I'm, I'm very interested in. So maybe someone in the audience has recommendations. I'd love to hear them either on YouTube or, uh, or sort of our Discord channel. Um, but yeah, I think we can uh, wrap it up. Anything else you want to add? No, thanks for having me. This was fun. Awesome. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you here. Um, thank you uh, to everyone who, who joined, who watched, who listened. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here as well. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the MLOps podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or add a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get this episode. Thank you and see you next time.